Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you for who you are. Today we ask that you'd receive all the glory and the honor for what takes place in this, in this sanctuary today. We would pray, Lord, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that you would cleanse me of any sin that would hinder the preaching of your word, and that you would speak to your people. And Lord, you wouldn't just allow us to be hearers of your word, but we would be doers of it, and that you wouldn't just stir us, but that you would change us. For Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen and amen. Our title of our sermon this morning is called, All I Want for Christmas is Joy. All I Want is Joy. If you look in our passage in in verse 10, it says this, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And what is the good news and what causes great joy? It tells us in verse 11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So the good news that brings great joy to all the people is the fact that there's a Savior that's been born. A Savior. I remember getting a Christmas card some years ago. Many of you have probably received it or sent it. And this is what it says. It says, if our, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was for forgiveness. So God sent us a Savior. A Savior. God sent us a Savior because of our greatest need. And our greatest need was to be forgiven. Was to be forgiven. You know, I've been in ministry now for over 27 years. And I have counseled countless number of people. And after all this counseling that I've done, I can tell you the truth that eight out of every 10 people that I've ever counseled, and it doesn't matter what kind of problem that that I'm counseling them about, whether that's a problem with marriage with their workplace, with money, with their family, with friends. It doesn't matter. When you boil it all down and you look at the very root of what they really are looking for, what they really want to know is if they could be forgiven. That's what they really want to know. They want to know if they can forgive and that they can be forgiven. You know... I want to tell you a little story about a father and a son. And the son's name is Paco. And they live in Madrid, Spain. And Paco is a teenager. And he's rebelling against his father. And one night it finally comes to a head. And the son just runs out of the house. And he runs away from home. And his father looks for him and searches for him for weeks And can't find him. Finally, in desperation, his father takes out an ad in a local newspaper. Front page ad. And this is what it said. It said, Dear Paco, meet me tomorrow on the steps of City Hall at 12 o'clock noon. And then in big bold letters it said, All is forgiven. I love you, Dad. All is forgiven. I love you, Dad. 
Paco's father woke up the next morning, got dressed, and headed into the city. And when he got to the city hall, there on the steps at 12 o'clock noon were 800 boys named Paco. 800 boys. They not only had their name in common, but they had one more thing in common. All of them wanted to know if they were forgiven. They desperately wanted to know, am I really really forgiven. Today in our passage, I'm going to help you look at four specific truths that are found in our passage that will help all of us know that great truth. And when you know this truth, that's when you experience the joy of Christmas. When you know that you know that you are forgiven, there's no greater joy. Because that's the good news, that a Savior's been born. And what we're going to look at, we're going to look at, first of all, the person, second of all, the people, third, the problem, and lastly, the payment. First of all, let's look at the person. In verse 11, it says, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The verse presents one of the foundational truths of Christianity. And that truth is that Jesus came and claimed to be the savior of the world. He didn't come as a political leader or a social reformer or even a religious founder. No, he came claiming and had come as the savior of the world. That is the person of Christ. Recently, I was sitting up in an office with a friend of mine. He's the CEO of a major corporation. And he looked at me and he said, Pastor Ed, I believe that all religions are basically the same. That all of them, all religions lead us back to God. Do you agree? And I said to him, I respectfully disagree. I disagree because of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is unique. The person of Christ is uniquely different than any other founder of any other religion. He said, why do you say that? I said, well, I can tell you a number of reasons, but I'm just going to give you four. First reason is because he claimed that he was God. No other founder of any respectable religion ever made that claim other than Jesus Christ. He said that he was God. Number two, that he not only claimed to be God, but he claimed he himself had the power and the authority to forgive you of your sin. No other founder of any other religion made that claim other than Jesus Christ. Thirdly, that Jesus claimed that salvation was by grace, not works. In other words, he, Jesus taught that salvation was a gift, and it was received by faith, not by works. I remember being in seminary, and I had a friend, he was a Hindu, and we were talking about this, and I said to him, salvation comes through Christ. And he said to me, well, how do you, you know, let's talk about that. I said, I'll tell you what, let's study all the religions because we're in religion class. And at the end of the time, we'll end up talking about what I just said. I am saying to you that Christianity is uniquely different because of Christ. And Christ taught that salvation was a gift. You don't earn it and you don't work for it and you don't even deserve it. It's a gift from God and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. After we studied all the religions, my Hindu friend came to me and said, Ed, you're absolutely right. After studying all the religions, every religion in the world, with the exception of Christianity, 
is man trying to be good enough, somehow trying to reach up to God and be approved by God. But only in Christianity do you find God reaching down to man through the person of Jesus Christ and providing salvation as a gift. And that gift is received not by works, but by faith in him. He got it. That's Christianity. That is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. But then I said to my friend, the fourth claim that Jesus made was that he was resurrected from the dead. No other founder of any other religion was resurrected from the dead, but only Jesus Christ. He not only made the claim, but he backed it up and he walked out of the grave. And then I went on to say to him, and by the way, when you understand what the Bible teaches, you understand that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship with a living Christ. Matter of fact, you can go wherever those other founders of those other religions are and they're buried and you can see the grave. But when you go to the grave of Christ, it's open, the doors are open, the temp, the temp, the, the whole tomb is empty and Christ has walked out. He's alive. Matter of fact, if you take, for example, Buddhism, You can take Buddha out of Buddhism and you still can practice Buddhism. If you take Muhammad out of Islam, you can continue to practice Islam. But you take Christ out of Christianity, you have nothing because it's about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this Jesus, as the Bible teaches, he said that he came and claimed to be the Savior of the world. And he had come for you, my friend. And he looked at me and he said, man, Ed... You've given me a lot to think about. Thank you. But Jesus Christ, my friends, he is a person, and he is one who walked out of the grave. And it says in the scriptures here, the good news that causes great joy for the people is that a Savior was born. Which leads us to our second point. Who did he come for? The people. In our passage, it says this. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for some of the people. No, it says all the people. You see, Jesus didn't just come for the Jew or just come for the Gentile. He came for the Jew and the Gentile. He didn't come just for the rich or just for the poor. He came for the rich and the poor. He didn't just come for those who are weak or those who are strong. He came from the weak and the strong. He came not for some. He came for all the people, all of us. And that means you. Jesus Christ has come for you. So why did he have to come for all the people? That leads us to our third point. Because all of us have a problem. All the people, every individual, every person has the same problem, and that problem is you and I are not perfect. We break the laws of God. The Bible makes it very, very clear that we all have broken the laws of God, and we need a Savior. In other words, each and every one of us, either by word, deed, or thought, or action, in some way we've gone against what we know was wrong, but we did it anyway, and we went against our conscience, and when we did that, we broke the laws of God. We've all rebelled against him. That's what the Bible says, that we all have sinned against God. Now, usually when I say that, people will say, now, wait a minute, Pastor Ed. I'm, you know, I know that the Bible teaches about the fact that God is love. If God loves us, why doesn't he just forgive us? 
Why does he have to send a savior? Why, what's that all about? Why didn't he just, if he forgives us, he just, if he loves us, he just forgives us. And every time I, they ever ask me that question, I always say to them, well, let's ask you a different question. Why doesn't our legal system just forgive everybody? It just says to everyone, you know what? It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or who you've done it to. You're a good guy. We're just going to forgive everybody and call it a clean slate. wonder if our legal system did that. What do you think about that? And their response is always the same. That wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be right. There would be no justice. And I say that's absolutely true. And that's not only true among men, but that's true in heaven. Listen, God has to be true to himself. It has to be true to his law. Yes, God's love is perfect, and he loves you perfectly. But God also is perfectly just. And when he makes laws and you break those laws, even though he loves you so much, he has to be true to his justice, and you and I have to become accountable for our actions. And when we break the laws of God, we will stand before God and give an account for everything that we've ever done. And if our law, if the law doesn't match up with our actions and we break the law, then we will be judged. And this is when someone will say to me quickly, wait a minute, Pastor Ed, are you telling me that if I have a few sins here and there that God is going to judge me? I didn't say that, the Bible did. But they'll say, but I'm not that bad of a guy. I mean, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't robbed any banks. And I'll say, okay, maybe you're a great person. And let's just say that you are really a good person and you only sin one time a day. And if you only sin one time a day, by the way, you're a lot better than I am. I will tell you that. But let's say that you sin just one time a day. Okay, you, you lived here about 70 years old, 365 days a year. 365 times 70 is 25,550 violations of God's law. Now let's drop that out of heaven into the earth right here. Let's just put it among men. And let's say that, okay, you're not a murderer and you haven't robbed banks, but let's say you've done little, little things like speeding. And let's turn all those 25,550 violations into speeding tickets, Okay. And finally, at the end of your life, you stand before the judge and he pulls out your rap sheet and he sees 25,550 violations of speeding. And he just says, you know what? You're not that bad of a guy. You haven't murdered anybody. You haven't done anything for anybody. I'm just going to let you go. You're good. You're good. Your, Your slate is clean. How would the world respond to that? How would the people who had the to pay for the consequences of speeding. How it, they would say, that's not fair. That's not right. There'd be no justice. And that's not only true among men, my friend, but that's true in heaven. Hear me, when we get into heaven, when we understand that every time we break the law of God, this is what the law says. Hear me. The law says that when you break the law, the wages of your sin is death. That in order to pay off the penalty of breaking the law, you've got to die. The problem is for you and me, here's the problem. The problem was that we can only die once. So you're only going to die for one sin. You've got 25,500 plus other sins that you've got to die for. It's impossible. You couldn't do it. I can't do it. And God knew that. That's why the Bible says this. Hear me now. This is why the Bible says, for God so loved you that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
In other words, Jesus knew and understood your problem. So he came. He was born of a virgin. He was Emmanuel, God with us, the God-man. And he became one of us. He lived a perfect life and satisfied the law. And then he went on a cross. And there who was a perfect sacrifice, never had sinned, died in our place to pay the penalty that we could not pay. And that God the Father raised him from the dead and he lives and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And now he has all authority and all power who can forgive you of your sin because he was your perfect sacrifice. He was the Savior of the world. And he satisfied the law. And God's justice and wrath fell upon him so it would not fall upon you. Hear me. Let me give you an illustration that will hopefully help you understand that we had a problem, but Jesus Christ came and paid the penalty that we had no way of paying. There was a woman who was driving a car in Georgia, a little town in Georgia, true story. And she was going 70 in a 55. An officer pulled her over, gave her a ticket. Two weeks later, she stood before the judge. And the judge looked at her and said, Madam, you've been caught speeding 70 and a 55. You've broken the law. And the law requires me to ask you to pay $100 for the fine. If you can't pay the fine, then you've got to go to jail for the weekend. And the woman looked at the judge and said, Your Honor, I, I can't pay the fine. I don't have $100. And I have children at home, and there will be no one there to watch them. I can't spend the weekend in jail. Please, is there anything that you can do for me? And the judge looked at her very matter-of-factly and said, I can't change the law. The law is the law. You either pay $100 or you spend a weekend in jail. And the woman's eyes began to well up with tears. And then she looked up at the judge and she said, Your Honor, I can't pay it. Please, can you have mercy? Please, have mercy. The judge pushed himself away from the bench, got up from his chair and walked over to a closet opened up the closet, unzipped his robes and put his robes away and then picked up this little coat, simple coat, put it on. He walked down by her and stood alongside of her, pulled out his wallet and took out a crisp $100 bill. He laid it up on the bench. Then he walked back up onto the platform, took off that simple coat, hung it up, took, off his, took back his robes, zipped them up and walked back over to his chair and sat in his chair, pulled himself up to the bench and looked at the woman and said, Madam, you have been caught speeding, 70 and a 55. You've broken the law, and the law requires that you pay $100. If you cannot pay $100, the law requires that you go to jail for a weekend. But, oh, I see. Oh, I see that somebody has paid your penalty and paid it in full. And because that your debt has been paid, the fine has been paid, the law requires that I set you free, and you are free. And the woman walked out of the courtroom. Hear me. Jesus Christ saw that you and I had a problem and there was no way we were going to pay it. We were going to be lost forever. But he so loved us 
that he unzipped his robes in heaven, if you will. He hung them up for a little while, and he put on a simple coat, the coat of humanity. And he became one of us. He became the Emmanuel, God with us, the God-man. And he came and he walked on the planet. He lived up close and personal with each and every one of those who were around him. And he walked on the earth and he was perfect. And he satisfied the law in every way. And then he went to the cross. And when he went to that cross, the wrath of God fell upon him. And there he paid our penalty in full. And that's why the Bible says it is finished. And what that means is that he paid it in full. And then God raised him from the dead. And when he walked out of that grave, he went back to the right hand of the Father. He zipped up his, his robes of royalty. And there he sits. And the Bible says every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And someday each and every one of us will stand before him. And we will give an account for everything that we've said, done, in secret or in private or in public, and we will give an account for that. But if we have come to Jesus, and it says the Bible, for God so loved you that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In that moment when you stand before your God, who will judge the living and the dead. And when you stand before him, if you've come to know Christ, he will say, "You, I have satisfied the law. The law and the justice has fallen on me. You're trusting in me. I forgive you. You are not guilty. And now you can enter into the kingdom of God. But if you stand there, and if you have rejected him, and you refuse to come to know him, then you are standing there alone, and you will give an account for everything that you've said and done. And if it doesn't match up with the law, you will be lost forever. Jesus Christ came and claimed that he would be the Savior of the world. And he has come. And he is here today, right now in this moment. He walked out of the grave and he's knocking at the door of your heart and he's saying this. He's saying, I love you and I want to forgive you. But you've got to believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son whoever believed. What does it mean to believe? You know, for 22 years of my life, I lived without Christ. My father was an atheist. I didn't know God, had nothing. Jesus to me was a swear word. But when I realized that I could believe and I could be, know that I could be forgiven and that I knew that heaven would be my home, when I gave my life to Christ, he transformed me. I'm not perfect, but he transformed me. And I know that heaven is my home. Do you know that today? If you know, you can today. For if God did this for me, he can do this for you. And it means to believe. And believe is as simple as this. It's as simple as A, B, and C. A means that you admit that you're not, per- that you're not perfect, that you need a Savior. I've told you I've been in ministry a long time, and I've dealt with addicts. And people who have addictions with pornography, drugs, alcohol, you can't help them if they don't admit that they have a problem. But the moment they admit that they have a problem, you can begin to work with them. If you're willing to admit that you're not perfect, that you need a Savior, then Jesus Christ is willing and ready to help you. But then you move from A to B, and B means you believe. You believe what Jesus Christ did on the cross, he did for you. And what he did on the cross was enough for you. It was enough. That you don't have to do anything more, that what he did was enough. And what you do is you transfer your trust from yourself to what Jesus has done. 
I've said this many, many times, but I tell you again today. My father one time took me out into a pool to help me to learn how to float on my back. And I tried and I tried and I kept going down to the bottom of the pool. Time and time again, finally my father took the water, threw it up in the air like this and said, Ed, water just like this holds up Navy ships. Navy ships. Stop trying and start trusting the water. Put your full weight on the water and let it do what it can do. That made sense to me. So I laid in the water, and sure enough, I floated. Hear me. You've got to believe what Jesus did on the cross was for you, and what he did was enough for you. You don't have to do anything more. You need to simply put your full trust on Jesus and believe what he did, he did for you. But that's where most people stop, right there. And then they don't know why their life isn't changed, why their life isn't turned around, why they don't experience the joy and the abundance that everything that God had promised, because they stop right there. And you can go to A and to B, but you've got to move on to C. And C means commitment. You've got to commit yourself to the person of Jesus Christ. Listen, when I married my wife, Tammy, I had a hard time making a decision, a commitment to her. Finally, she looked at me and said, listen, son, Either you commit or I'm walking. What are you going to do? Where are you in this? I'm not playing this game anymore. Either you commit to me or, we, or, or I'm moving on. And I finally had to make a commitment. I had to say either I love you. And when I made that commitment, I made that commitment to my wife, Tammy. And that meant I said no to everyone else. And it meant I said yes to her. And I didn't do it privately, I did it publicly in front of all my friends and my family. So there was no question about where I stood. I was committed to my wife. Listen to me, so many people play this game. They play the game that somehow you're going to get into the kingdom because you have some kind of private faith. Believe me, that is baloney. If you're ashamed of Christ, the Bible makes it very clean, very clear. He'll be ashamed of you. This idea of a private faith is absolutely ridiculous. It is what the enemy tries to convince you people of, and I'm telling you this this morning. You either commit to him and you join him face-to-face in a relationship with him, or you do not know him. The Bible makes it very clear. We did all these things in your name. We did all these things, but he says, I don't know you. Hear me, until you commit your life to Christ, you don't know him. Would you commit yourself, ladies, to a man who's unwilling to commit yourself to you? Men, would you really give your whole life to somebody who's not willing to commit themselves to you? Tell me that they're truly your friend. Tell me they're truly your husband or your wife. Some of you have had people who've betrayed you and turned on you. Don't tell me that that's commitment. Don't tell me that that's true. The truth of it all is, is that we either commit ourselves or we're not committed. This morning, this Jesus is solely committed to you. He's given his life for you. He's been nailed to a cross and he loves you and he's raised again from the dead so that you can know that you're forgiven and that you have eternal life. Right here in this moment, you can know that great truth. You can know the joy of Christmas by coming to know him as your personal savior. Is that what you want? Is that what you want for Christmas? You can have it. Right here, right now. Don't let anything keep you from what I'm about to ask you to do. If everyone would please bow your heads, close your eyes with me, I'm going to ask you to make a decision today, to make a commitment to him, to say to Jesus, yes, I admit, I have a problem, I've broken your laws. 
And I can't save myself, but I'm turning my trust from myself to you, Jesus. But right now, even though I might feel afraid, I come to you. I fight my fear and I come to you and I commit myself to you, Lord, because I want to know for certain that I have eternal life. I want to know for certain that I'm forgiven and I want this relationship with you. If that's you this morning, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand right now. Look up at me and raise your hand and say to God and to me, and I will pray for you. And we we are going to pray in just a few moments, but if you will just raise your hand and say, by raising your hand, I want to know Jesus Christ. Please raise your hand right now. Thank you. Raise it up high. Don't be ashamed of it. Make sure that I see you face to face. Look right at me. I see you. Thank you. I see you. Thank you. Those of you in the back, I see you. Yes, ma'am. They're all here on my right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to pray for you, and this is what I'm going to ask you to do. After I pray with you, the prayer doesn't save you. Jesus Christ does. And when I pray this prayer, what I'm going to ask you to do when we have communion, when you come to communion, I'll tell you right after the prayer what I want you to do. But let's pray with me. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Just pray this prayer with me now. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that you went to the cross for me. I've gone against you. I've rebelled against you in my life. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin. And I ask you right now to fill me with your spirit that from this day forward I will walk with you, I'll commit myself to you, and I, I thank you for what you've done for me. And I thank you for the salvation that I just received by faith. And I repent and I turn away from the ways that I'm going and I turn to you and I commit myself to you. And from this day forward, I ask for the fullness of your spirit that I might walk with you every day from this moment on until I see you face to face. For Lord, I thank you and praise you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, would you look right here? I am going to be down here serving communion, right here at this altar. I've got some gifts I want to give to you that will help you grow in your relationship. This is communion. This is a great opportunity to come and seal what you've done. Come here, allow me to serve you communion today. Tell me that you prayed that prayer. I want to give you this gift, and as you go out, there's a card in the bag. I want you to pull out the card as we're singing and we're worshiping. Just fill out that card, and as you walk out, you give it to an usher. That usher is going to give those cards to me and to the church. And I am going to pray for you all this Christmas season. I'm going to pray that God will work with you, provide for you, keep you and protect you, deliver you and your family. So I want you to get this gift. I want you to fill out this card because listen to me. Look right here. I've walked with God a long time. And when I was young like you and I came to Christ, I needed prayer. And I want to pray for you. Please come right here to the communion table. And I will give to you communion, and then I will give you this bag. You fill out the card, you turn the card back into the, uh, the ushers as you leave, and those cards are going to come back to me into the church, and we're going to pray for you. No, folks, today, there are many who came to know Christ this day. And I believe with all my heart, because the Bible says it, that all heaven is rejoicing. All heaven is rejoicing because of you coming to know him today. God bless you as we celebrate Celebrate communion.